Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Today's tale opens in a bathroom at the Hotel de Paris, a luxury hotel, it turns out, not in the City of Lights, but in Monte Carlo, Monaco. The date? 27th November, 1936. International man of mystery, arms dealer, an all-round monster Sir Basil Zaharov had been in town since October, just chasing the sun or at the very least sidestepping the colder months back home at the stately Chateau de Balancourt. The night before, ZZ, as he was known to friends and family, had been out on the town with his daughter. Short, the valet, had run a piping hot bath for him as he always did. Overnight, the tub would call to room temperature for his morning dip, just as Sir Basil liked it. A creature of habit, Basil stayed at the same suite whenever in town. He always rose at half past nine, had breakfast in bed, caught up on all the important news, then bathed. Back to that bathroom. Today something was different. It must have come as quite the surprise to Short, though when he checked on the boss, he found Sir Basil dead in the tub. In this tale, there is no great mystery at Basil's passing. He was 87 years old and in ailing health. Rich or poor, we all have to go eventually. However, his death was extremely newsworthy. Though largely forgotten now, in 1936, Sir Basil Zaharov was remembered by many. When they thought of him, they did so as an agent of destruction, a man with the blood of hundreds of thousands on his hands. Somewhat gleefully, the press had jumped the gun and reported his death several times before. But finally, the old bastard was dead. When the world's wickedest man passed, there was much commentary, but little of substance to say about him. He cast a huge, ominous shadow over Europe for years, manipulating politicians in many nations and capitalising upon their fears by feeding an unprecedented arms race. All agreed countless young men died so Zaharov could be astonishingly rich. But when researchers looked into his dealings, the man was often little more than a shadow, lurking in the background. Today we're going to take a look at what can be said on the life of Basil Zaharov. Like any mystery man, Basil Zaharov's past was obscured for much of his life, all the better for him to claim to be Greek, Romanian, Russian, or on one occasion a Bulgarian doctor. But he was probably born in 1849 to Greek parents in Mugla in the southwest of modern-day Turkey. His birth name, Vasilius Zacharias. In 1821, the Greeks living in modern-day Greece successfully rebelled against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans had been their overlords for nearly 400 years at the time, having captured Constantinople in 1453. 
and then steamrolled for the remainder of the Byzantine Empire. The last Greek bastion, the Black Sea Principality of Theodoro, fell in 1475. Greece had never been content with being colonised. And the Greek War of Independence, 1821-29, was not their first rebellion. It was, however, the rebellion that counted. The Turks lost a lot of countrymen in that rebellion and carried out a bloody Easter pogrom against Greeks living in Asia Minor in retribution. Basil's family fled the pogroms to Russia, where they lived until the 1840s. While there, they russified their surname to Zaharov. They did eventually return, however, first to Mughla, and then Istanbul when Basil was just three years old. As a child, Basil probably attended a posh school in England, but at some point in his teens, he was back in the Ottoman Empire. In Istanbul, he is alleged to have worked as a tour guide, then a brothel tout, then finally a fireman. Now this doesn't quite mean what it does today. Far from offering an emergency service, they were criminal gangs who set the fires and then blackmailed homeowners into paying their money to save their prized possessions. In 1865, a fire in the Hokapasa region of Istanbul got far out of control and destroyed more than 2,900 homes. This fire prompted urban planners to drastically rethink the layout of the city and its essential services. It also led to the arrest of all known fire starters in the city. At this time, Basil Zaharov, who may or may not have been a part of that fire, vanished, soon reappearing in England. Now, Basil was nothing if not versatile. In England, he claimed to be the son of a wealthy senior Russian official. In 1870, Emily Burroughs, the daughter of a successful builder, met and fell in love with Zacharias Gortsikov. And in 1872, the couple married in Paris. Neither Emily nor her family ever looked into the young man's background. If they had, they would have soon realised his alleged family background and the actual story of recently deceased Russian war hero, Prince Mikhail Gorchakov, did not match terribly well. But they took the young man at his word. And the couple's wedded bliss lasted for about a month. One day, Basil Zaharov convinced Emily they must flee to Europe immediately. His enemies in Russia had tracked him down, and the couple fled to Belgium, where Basil had wrongly believed there was no extradition treaty. November 1872, Basil was arrested by Belgian police officers. Returned to London, he was charged with defrauding a Greek merchant of a thousand pounds worth of stock and nearly £7,000 in securities. He initially pled his innocence, later changing his story. In his later claim, he worked for the man, and was only guilty of taking commissions and living costs owed to him. In a third twist, the merchant was his uncle, who was withholding three years' worth of commissions from him. While plainly nonsense, a letter from this merchant was produced confirming Basil's story. Now, it's thought the merchant was blacklisted back home on Basil's family's instigation, and rather than go bust, he decided to just cut his losses and let it go. 
Just like that, Basil Zaharov walked free. His following seven years were quite sedate by comparison. He moved, initially still with Mrs. Zaharov, to Cyprus, now living under the name ZZ Williamson. Using his wife's money, Zaharov set up a shop on the island. He made a decent living and engaged in real estate speculation. And while on Cyprus, he became good friends with Stephen Skolodis, a prominent businessman who would later become Prime Minister of Greece. Many on the island didn't trust Williamson, but he still secured a number of backers for his schemes. As Basil cruised a while, presumably enjoying several law-abiding years, international tensions flared up between Russia, the Ottomans and Greece. In the Balkans, the Serbo-Turkish War kicked off in 1876. The victors, Serbia and Montenegro, secured their independence from the Ottoman Empire. Now, observant watchers might have been awed by the destructive power modern weapons brought to the battlefield. Certainly arms dealers noticed. They were practically swarming around the Balkans on the lookout for business. An arms race was about to kick off in places like the Balkan states made for ideal client nations. Around this time, future Prime Minister Skolodis introduced Basil to a Swedish sea captain friend who had a sideline as a dealer for an up-and-coming Swedish inventor named Forsten Nordenfeldt. Captain was moving on, so probably in 1877, Basil Zaharov, newly minted arms dealer, stepped into the breach. But for the following couple of years, he continued to busy himself as a shopkeeper and the real estate speculator. He only made one sale, a shipload full of rifles he sent to Greece in 1881, after his life began to spiral. In those quiet years, Emily left Basil and returned to England. Once divorced, she allegedly had a brief affair with future Prime Minister of Britain, David Lloyd George. Hang on to that for later. Basil started another business, a building contracting company, which he hoped would modernise Cyprus. By 1879, Basil was in London, trying to convince the British who rented Cyprus off the Ottomans to buy Cyprus outright. His hope that to do so would bring political stability to the island. This would lead to overseas investors hiring Basil's construction firm, a change of government back in England threw a spanner in the works. But the incident that nearly brought him low was several large bills that had been piling up. The Cypriot economy slumped in 1880, and debtors came looking for him to pay his bills. Basil Zaharov hightailed it out of Cyprus. Basil spent time in Paris, and then Greece, before he boarded a ship bound for New York in 1884. In America, he bought a Texan cattle ranch and invested in oil and railroad companies. He next made headlines when, as Zacharias Zaharov, he bigamously married an American heiress named Jeannie Billings, an American businessman who lived in Bristol in the 1870s, saw the news report on the wedding, and guessed this Zacharias Zaharov was the guy he'd met years earlier the shyster who married Emily Burroughs. He approached Jeannie's parents with his concerns, 
Jeannie's family hired private investigators, and a mad rush to England ensued. The following scandal made international news headlines and led to a fast end to his second marriage. It was at this point Basil Zaharov, a long dormant agent for Nordenfeldt's weapons firm, finally appeared out of the woodwork. There's a phrase in English now more or less fallen into disuse, the system Zaharov. It is perhaps best explained by the tale of the submarines. So there's this legend often told by Zaharov himself, that one day he arrived in Athens and scared the Greek government into buying a submarine to fight off the Turks. Sooner or later, the mighty Ottoman Empire would try to reconquer Greece after all. Days later, he was seen in Constantinople. While there, he met with the leadership, convinced them the Turks needed two submarines. Athens had ordered a submarine from him just the other day, and this augurs well for no one. Now this is pernicious enough, but from there he visited Russia, convincing them the only way to deal with a Turk with a submarine is to have a Russian with a submarine. The way Basil told it, he sold them four subs. Broadly speaking, something like this did happen. But of course, all three nations had been spending a large percent of their GDP in stockpiling and rearming themselves before Basil appeared. And it was hardly like he hoodwinked them with his Nordenfeldt submarines. Well, not in the way he was framing it anyway. He managed to sell all three countries unreliable death traps. And regardless, all three nations remained regular future customers. Now, seeing submarines have been in the press a lot lately, and no, I have this episode planned for months, I should quickly digress on submarines, just for a moment. The earliest working submarine was a leather-clad pod with oars, invented in the 1620s by a polymath named Cornelis Drebbel. Drebbel made three prototypes, which ambled along just below the surface of the Thames on a number of test rides. Notably, King James I took a ride in one prototype. Now, the idea didn't develop at the time, as the Royal Navy fought them silly toys. The idea was revisited in the American Revolution, when a doctor and inventor named David Bushnell created a one-man craft, the turtle. He designed the craft so that Americans could covertly plant mines onto the hulls of British ships while nobody was looking. In the late 1790s, American steamboat innovator Robert Fulton took the design further, building a hand-cranked submarine called the Nautilus, which he hoped the French Navy would adopt in the Napoleonic Wars. With the occasional outlier, like the H.L. Hunley, used by Confederates in the U.S. Civil War to sink the USS Housatonic, the Hunley itself sank to the bottom of Charleston Harbor the same day. The idea stagnated. The main challenge was in developing a vessel with a stable propulsion method. By the mid-1880s, technology brought new possibilities, and Nordenfeldt's steam-powered submarine was new, untested technology. All the same, they were suddenly one of many trying to build a reliable military submarine. Now, these subs were quickly recognised by all buyers as death traps, and were left to rust. 
Russia's order stopped at just the one sub, which crashed on its way to Russia. Reliable submarines came later, by the way of an American inventor named J.P. Holland. Holland built a reliable craft with funding from Irish-American interests, who at turns had ties to the Fenian Brotherhood. The Fenians were a precursor organisation to the Irish Republican Army. But Basil made most of his money on more reliable weapons, like battleships and machine guns. In 2022, I did an episode, The Infernal Machine, that discussed why the machine gun gained popularity at the end of the 19th century. A very abridged answer, the Gatling gun was developed by a North Carolinian inventor named Richard Gatling. He believed his invention would actually save lives. Gatling's rationale, most deaths in war were due to disease, spread through cramped, dirty battlefield conditions. If he made a gun that let one soldier do the work of dozens, fewer people had to be on the battlefield in the first place. Now once put into action, the machine gun caused more, not less death. Machine guns gained popularity, although it took generals some time to work out how to really use them. And another factor, fewer young men were signing up for military service. Industrialization created a range of new jobs for these men. And the horrors of the Crimean War made a whole generation very wary of dying on foreign soil. But all the same, they appealed to a niche audience. Nations primarily interested in defense, most notably the Chinese, often bulked at the cost of the bullets alone. A weapon that fired $5 worth of bullets a minute in 1880s money felt prohibitively expensive. The colonizing nations, out to exploit the wealth of other nations, could afford the purchase. While most European soldiers sent to carve up Africa didn't have a machine gun, most battalions had a couple of them. Even in small numbers, the machine gun was a game changer. The American military used machine guns in the Central American Banana Wars, in Cuba and in the Philippines. Basil Zaharov did good business selling machine guns, especially to the British in India. And other clients included Brazil, Uruguay, Spain, Romania, and Portugal. But when it comes to machine guns, their big competition was the far superior Maxim gun. We also mention Hiram Maxim and the Infernal Machine. Born in 1840 in Sangerville, Maine, he invented the first fully automatic machine gun. An inventor who literally made a better mousetrap and who may have made an earlier light bulb than Edison. He stated one fateful day in Vienna, Austria, somebody advised him, hang your chemistry and electricity. If you want to make a pile of money, invent something that will enable these Europeans to cut each other's throats with greater facility. By 1884, Maxim had gone into business with the Vickers Company, and he soon won contracts with the Swiss and the Italians. At one exhibition, Zaharov faced off against Maxim for the Russian ruble. Basil undermined Maxim's sharpshooters by getting them too drunk to shoot straight. At another, this time touting for Austrian sales, the Maxim gun easily outgunned the Nordenfeld, but Basil still threw a spanner in the works. Sure, the gun was great, 
but it didn't fire Austria's preferred gauge or bullet. Maxim returned to the factory and had one of the guns refitted. That gun proved faulty on exhibition. It was claimed Basil got to the gun by taking the foreman out for lunch and then got him drunk enough to pass out. After a quick repair, the gun was ready to exhibit, but a stranger in the crowd, Basil, convinced several onlookers the Maxim gun was too highly strung and would require constant maintenance. Maxim was furious with Zaharov, though he still won the Austrian contract for 150 machine guns. However, the two men soon became close friends. Vickers and Nordenfeld merged, and Basil Zaharov soon became Vickers' top salesman. In the decades leading up to the First World War, Basil profited off unprecedented weapon sales. A modest commission in terms of percentage was still enough to make him outrageously wealthy. In many cases, Basil and others like him were fomenting this boom in sales by scaring or bribing politicians into vastly increasing their arms budgets. Basil had an uncanny ability to find the right person to bribe. Well, technically, he would claim he lost a lot of stupid bets. Many a Tuesday, Basil was said to have lost a fortune by betting some high-ranking official tomorrow would be a Sunday. He also had a talent for finding and betting powerful men's mistresses to get an in with that powerful man. One aristocratic Spanish woman he likely betted for this reason, the Duchess de Villafranca de los Caballeros, would later become his third wife. He cultivated a vast network of assets, including a rogue named Ignaz Trebich Lincoln. I'll return to Ignaz sometime in the future. But most importantly, it was rumoured he caught the ear of future Prime Minister of Britain, David Lloyd George, through the politician's extramarital connection with his first wife. Now, because of an incident in 1927 that we will come back to, we just don't have enough by way of details of his many meetings with the power brokers of Europe. We don't know to how much of an extent he stoked the fires for the upcoming war. But we do know, in a war whose main drivers included rapid rearmament, repeated cases of false brinkmanship, and growing numbers of talking heads stating a coming war was inevitable, Basil Zaharov always seemed to be in the background. In 1891, a political rift in Chile between reforming president José Manuel Balmaceda and their Congress accelerated into an all-out civil war. Basil Zaharov was there to arm both sides. The war raged for six months, costing 10,000 lives, including that of deposed president Balmaceda. Basil Zaharov was there in the aftermath to replenish her armaments. In South America, it is rumoured he arranged for a number of truces to local conflicts, so Vickers could come in and rearm both sides. Back in Europe, Basil diversified, buying up newspapers. Now one may ask why a shadowy, powerful arms dealer would want to sway public opinion in the decades before the Great War. And for me to say any more would just be speculation. When war was declared in Europe, Basil Zaharov, to his credit, chose a side. Though it should be pointed out, all arms dealers did. 
but all arms dealers had patents being used by their opposition, bringing in money from the enemy. They all profited to some degree from both sides of the war. Basil, now in his 60s, went to work for the Allies. During the war, Basil meddled by convincing the Allies not to bomb German-captured steelworks at Fionville. In an effort to protect Zaharov's business interests, the war stretched out longer than it had to, at a heavy cost in lives. On the flip side, he worked hard behind the scenes to bring Greece into the Allied fold. Greece was divided over the war. Their king, Constantine I, was a friend of Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm and felt that if they should support anyone, it should be the Germans. Their Prime Minister, Eleutherius Venizelos, was a vocal supporter of the Allies. Greece finally came to the party, on the Allied side in 1917. At the same time, Basil Zaharov was working away on the Turks, who had entered the war in the early stages on Germany's side. He'd secured £10 million from David Lloyd George to bribe a hunter of Turkish officers and politicians to rebel and then surrender to the Allies. After several covert meetings in Switzerland, one of which saw Basil detained and strip-searched on entry to the country, he never quite got the putsch over the line. But all the same, this effort won him a knighthood from Britain at the war's end. Now there are a few other tales I'd like to share on our mystery man. He invested his wealth into a number of businesses, and this included the oil industry. He was a major shareholder in the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, the precursor to BP Oil. He injected himself into peace talks on behalf of the oil industry, and had a small part in the reshaping of the Middle East. Although in all fairness, his views align very closely with David Lloyd George's anyway. In one way, however, he did go off on his own. Anglo-Persian oil needed access through the former Ottoman Empire's former European lands, specifically the Thracian Road, to get to some of their oil fields. Turkey was in decline, and that land had been promised to the Tsar of Russia in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Basil convinced the other powers to renege on that deal, seeing Russia, then in the midst of a civil war, was no longer the same nation they had bargained with. Then, concerned a resurgent Turkey might take the land back, or some do claim that out of an outpouring of Greek patriotism, Basil became a leading voice in the Greek invasion of Turkey in 1919. More than that, he donated half a billion French francs to the cause. On 15th of May 1919, 20,000 Greek soldiers landed in Smyrna, kicking off the Greco-Turkish War. By 1920, Turkey had ceded eastern Thrace, giving the oilmen their road. Further talks around the Greek enclave of Smyrna and a significant no-man's land around it failed to come to a compromise. More Greek troops arrived as the invasion continued, but the push forwards met with heavy resistance from the Turks. And then a strange incident in Athens changed the trajectory of the war. The pro-German king, Constantine I, had gone into exile following Greece's entry into World War I, leaving the crown to his second son, Alexander. 
Alexander was essentially a puppet king, and not terribly well liked by the people, after he married a commoner. In 1920, while walking his dog through a royal winery, the dog got into a fight with a worker's pet monkey. Alexander stepped in and got bitten by the monkey for his trouble. The wound on his hand turned septic, and Alexander died of blood poisoning on 2nd October 1920. His death led to an outpouring of grief among the war-weary populace, which in turn led to the return of King Constantine. The returned king immediately started to work on an exit strategy to get out of Turkey, hopefully in a way that wouldn't see them punished for the conflict. The war continued until 1922. While trying to tie down the death toll for Basil Zaharov's oil road, I found estimates varied wildly. At least 30,000 soldiers were killed, and across several genocidal massacres, anywhere between 60,000 and over 100,000 civilians were executed. Now I want to conclude this episode by pointing out Basil Zaharov was a mystery man by design. He was extremely guarded about the particulars of his life, but he was also a keen diarist who chronicled his life for at least 58 years. In November 1927, this very nearly got him in deep trouble. Word had gotten out to the newspapers, but ZZ had this vast memoir stashed away at the chateau. Some offered him staggering sums of money for the publishing rights. Others tried to steal the diaries. When one paper offered one of his servants £10,000 to steal them, and that servant told him of the offer, Basil lit a fire at Chateau Balancourt. For two days he sat by the fireplace, feeding his sins to the conflagration. His sins burned hot, so hot in fact, the servants were terrified the whole chateau might catch fire. One frustrating element of his story is we know he became a very rich man for doing some very bad things. But the extent of those bad things, and his own rationale for them, remain ethereal. What we can say of him, for certain, is bad enough, and what we can suspect about him can only ever remain conjecture. But we can say his sins were so egregious, and so numerous, he spent 48 hours at a stretch, burning the evidence, so we may never know how evil he was. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.